Okay. Um, thank you all for braving the uh, the snow and uh, being so tough. We um, appreciate that the fact that you are so willing to be able to not let anything stand in the way of church, and that's great. Um, we're going to continue on here with our study on original sin. So. The two documents that you might want to have, if you don't have them, one says the Article 1 of the Formula of Concord on Original Sin. The other is here an introduction to the Formula of Concord and um, just some of the uh, kind of the historical background there to the, um, what was happening with the formula. Um, maybe what we'll do, we'll start with a prayer and then uh, I'll touch a little bit more on how the Lutherans ended up being so divided after the war. Okay, let's pray. O Lord, our forefathers fought and died, many of them, for the sake of the truth of our gospel. And were it not for their sacrifice, today we would not have such a clear and wondrous understanding of the gospel It is an inheritance that you have bequeathed to our Lutheran Church, and we pray that we may be able to hold on to it and to be faithfully transmitting it to the generations that follow. As we look at our world today, and we see Christianity becoming more and more shallow, weak, non-theological, we pray that we might not see this as a matter of indifference, or a scholarly approach to Scripture that does not affect us, but rather that we might take it to heart and deeply see the mystery of the gospel behind this terrifying and very uh, difficult understanding of the law. Therefore, O Lord, bless our study of your word today as we look into Scriptures, as we look into our past, as we look now also to our future. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, some things uh, that may be a little bit of an overlap. We appreciate that, and some of you may not have been here. But roughly speaking, you know, the minute that Luther died, um, the emperor, Charles V, along with the imperial forces, immediately attacked uh, Lutheran lands. Um, The Lutherans probably would have done okay Uh, Had it not been for a major error on the battlefield, uh, Charles V brought in a general who was probably one of the greatest generals of all time. His name was the Duke of Alba, A-L-B-A. I only know that because there's a brandy named after him. (laughs) And uh, and I said, well, this must be good because uh, I have to, and I looked up his name. But anyway... Um, the Duke of Alba uh, caught Luther's elector um, in a place called Muehlberg, and there the so-called small called uh, forces were defeated, and immediately uh, there the uh, elector was, I mean, there the emperor was at the grave of Martin Luther, which is, you know, you see it today, it's there at the base of the pulpit of Lutheran in the Schlosskirche of the Wittenberg Church. And the Roman Catholic imperial uh, bishop there saying, dig up his bones and scatter them. Burn them and scatter them. And the emperor said, no, let things be. Because they knew 
that I guess you might say that the, that the legacy of Lutheranism was actually deeply entrenched within the hearts of the people. And the more that they did to desecrate and to bring, I guess you might say, destruction to the Lutheran cause, uh, the more that they realized that they would receive a pushback that would eventually harm them. So um, the guy who had kind of switched sides in the battlefield, if you will, was this guy named Maurice, uh, who was the, um, he was the Duke of Meissen, and Maurice, uh, who was the nephew, actually, of uh, Luther's elector, um, I guess you might say probably wanted to be able to have the lands or control of the lands of Luther's elector, and he switched sides, and suddenly, uh, of course, that's also helped to bring about the destruction of their forces. Kind of one of those things in history, uh, when we were in a town called Meissen, which is where it is that the elector came from, or this duke came from, um, they said that uh, there was a celebration in the cathedral. It sits at the very top of the hill in Meissen. Maybe some of you have heard about Meissen um, uh, porcelain. Have you heard of Meissen? It's very famous porcelain as well. It's where they discovered how to make porcelain. But anyway, this cathedral sits at the very top of the hill, and they were having a service celebrating the victory over the Lutherans, and lightning struck the cathedral and burned it to the ground. And the Lutherans all said, Yes! <laughs> no, they... Um, some, sometimes, you know, you kind of think that maybe God is not out there. Um, you might remember that um, something like this happened up in Minneapolis. You've heard that, haven't you? That as the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, as they gathered together and all voted to accept homosexual clergy, that a tornado suddenly appeared out of nowhere, totally unexpected, nobody predicted it. It went down the street and it tore off the cross on the top of the church across the street from the convention center. And then you say that to people and they go, oh, there's, there's no relationship between those two. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, God just kind of makes his, his statement known, you know. And so in any case, after this, it became clear that it was hard for Lutherans to be Lutherans in Lutheran lands. Um, yeah, they were going to, the Roman Catholic Church was not going to force Lutherans, they could not force Lutherans into accepting just a total reversion back to Roman Catholicism. So they made compromises, and the Lutherans, uh, particularly led by this guy named Philip Melanchthon, who is still there teaching at the uh, university in Wittenberg, um, they were under pressure to make concessions as well that would make it possible, if you will, to be Lutherans underneath Roman Catholic domination. And as the Roman Catholics insisted that the Lutherans restore certain things in the service and the worship of the church that were kind of typically Roman Catholic things that Lutherans had taken and removed. Um, guys like Philip Melanchthon said, look, all right, well, we can wear the same kinds of clergy vestments. All right, we'll celebrate the 
the feast of uh, the Immaculate Conception. I don't know, whatever else, not that they were imposing upon them. And Melanchthon is saying, well, they're neither commanded nor forbidden, they're adiaphora, and so therefore we can accept these modifications if it makes for peace. And other Lutherans, like a professor at the seminary named Flacius, Flacius, um, he said, no, the minute that they tell us that we have to, in order to be able to be a church, in order to be able to function as a church, in order to represent the church, in order to be able to bring the forgiveness of sins, we have to do this to bring forgiveness. The minute that somebody says we have to, we have to say, no, we won't. And this brought up what they called the adiaphoristic controversy. When are we able to make compromises? When are we able to do things that, in a sense, make for peace, that maybe are things that we do because it helps us to be able to maybe even look like a church. Like today we might say, is it necessary for us to do liturgy? Is it necessary for us to use the hymnal? See, on a certain level you'd say, using a hymnal doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go to heaven, right? And so when I go out to California and I go to the church and they've got the entire service printed in the bulletin, not using the hymnal, is that okay? What if we take out some of the liturgy? Should we take out a Kyrie? Take out a Gloria in Excelsis? Take out the Alleluias? Take out the reading of these scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, maybe just have one reading? At what point do you just kind of not become the church anymore? And what about the unity of the church? What about that there is... A, a commonality between what we share and what we experience with one another. See, this adiaphora controversy is not something that's easily applied today because we would say, look, when we become a Lutheran church, we have promised that we will not use any materials that have not been kind of theologically digested and approved, and yet it happens all over the place. We have promised that we will actually use a common hymnary but it's commonly not used. So what's happening? We're fraying at the edges. Our common confession, people can come here and they can see our liturgy and our use of the hymnal and they don't have any idea what in the heck we're even doing because they've not had any exposure to it where they are. I go to those churches where... It's just Joe the guitar guy up there who's kind of singing by himself and that's the worship. And I want to leave and say I don't think I've even worshipped. Pastor might stand up and preach the word of God and I would say, well, I kind of did worship because I heard the word of God. I heard the gospel. I heard law. That's good. How much is necessary and this is a real struggle in Lutheranism because you have Roman Catholicism that would have a very prescribed liturgy that you had to follow, very prescribed rubrics that you have to endure. If you're in the, if you're in the Episcopal Church, they have canon law, which means that it actually details out how it is that you carry out your practice. What are we going to do in our church when it seems as though every man does what is right in his own eyes? And at what point do you pull that in? Well, the adiaphoristic controversy, therefore, meant that now you had Lutherans over here who said, we ain't giving in, 
And they were centered in a place called Magdeburg. Um, on our last tour, was it the last tour or the one before, that we actually went to Magdeburg. And it was a city that was heavily bombed, so a lot of what it originally looked like. But it was a fortified city that was a, literally an impenetrable fortress. Then we had Wittenberg, where you have Melanchthon and a faculty that is, I guess you might say, making compromises for the sake of peace. And a lot of people felt as though there were too many compromises that they were making, and they were giving up on the gospel in many respects. Then you had actually another force that's over here, and it's hard to quite describe because they talked about it being crypto-Calvinistic, that is, that there were certain people on the faculty of, of the uh, university that were beginning to accept, as there were also different leaders now throughout Europe that were also accepting Calvinistic theology. Now we say, what's wrong with Calvinism? Well, Calvinism, it, 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 although Calvin in many respects you could hear a very clear gospel sometimes in Calvin. But basically, Calvinism, because... How, how did we put this? All right. Here's God, and here's man. And as Martin Luther and the Lutherans would say, through Christ, and now the sacraments of the church, God dispenses his grace to us through Christ, through the sacraments. That, that, that intimate connection between Christ and the sacraments is necessary. So that here you have the word of God and you have baptism, the Lord's Supper, and even absolution. And that God is passing us through. Calvin... And this relationship between God and man was direct. And the church, there were reflections in the church which became a, I guess you might say, a, a social, cultural uh, force that people, because of this relationship, that they... it. It manifested itself in works and in deeds that actually were a part of the society. But this view essentially put the church and the state into a relationship where essentially the church kind of became that Puritan culture that was going to actually morally shape the society. You go out to New England and there are still the remnants of that culture out there where it's kind of believed that the, the church is there to make the society do good things. And if you are really highly Christian, that you actually are a person who believes that the culture should be shaped by, it, culture and Christianity should be almost one. That you go down into the south and you deal with some of these fundamentalism that you see down there and these people are it's God and culture, God and guns, God and guts. You know, it's God in the culture. If you go up to a place like New England, it's more of a social thing where the church has a responsibility to engage the culture and try to 
help people with problems and disabilities and all those things as well. But here, this view is very different from this. And when the crypto-Calvinists came in, they were essentially the ones who probably were more responsible for starting the Thirty Years' War. The Lutherans were not responsible for starting the Thirty Years' War. They ended up being drawn into it, but they weren't the ones who initiated it. It was initiated, it, start, it sparked uh, actually in Prague, and, um, and where they threw some of the Roman Catholic delegates out of the window of the castle. And that, for some reason, apparently had a problem. They had a problem with that. Um, yeah. So anyway, what happens is that all of a sudden, this, the, the state now becomes kind of an advocate of the church. And you've heard of something called the Prussian Union. The electors of Prussia became Calvinists, even though their entire realm were Lutherans. And when they became Calvinists, they actually saw their job to actually bring about a uniformity in the culture between the churches. And so they took the Reformed Church and the Lutheran Church and they said, now you have to merge. And that actually drove huge numbers of Lutherans out of Prussia. When Prussia eventually took over Hanover and was going to do this exact same thing, just about anybody here who has any kind of German background, you probably left Prussia or Hanover because of these forces of the, of the Prussian state church basically running the state now, or the state running the church. So this view became very different than this view, and they also had to address that, that what, they, what they saw coming or what they saw happening. So take a look here at the three divisions, the three parties after Luther's death. The one party was kind of made up of, generally, roughly, inter intermiss, those are the people who um, were working on, like Melanchthon, working on that uh, compromise with the Roman Catholic Church. Synergists, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Synergism is where it is believed that man and God cooperate with each other and work together for salvation. This isn't all God's doing. It's only when we actually add to it something of our own will and choice, which is the dominant theology of our American culture today. Man has to cooperate with God. I'd like to know, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, you ain't saved. Notice how it is that those Minnesotans, they just stare at you like they don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> they, um, the, um, I had a, a guy that I went to seminary with who had gone to um, this uh, seminary, I think it's called, is it Trinity in Deerfield, the, the um, Reform Seminary up there in uh, Chicago. And he had been brought up as a Lutheran, or I think in the early years as a Lutheran, but he decided he wanted to go into the ministry, and so he went to this Trinity Seminary in, in Deerfield, which was Reformed. And everybody was supposed to get up and do a personal testimony about when it is that they accepted Jesus as their Savior. That was a part of their chapel service. So he's studying, and he's reading, and he's studying, and he's reading, and he starts reading Martin Luther. 
And he gets up when it's his turn to stand up and talk about how it is that he accepted Jesus as his Savior at, you know, July 15th, 1961. And he says, you know, he said, um, number one, um, I didn't accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. (gasps) He accepted me when I was about seven days old and my parents brought me to church and had me baptized. (sighs) That was the end of his seminary training at Trinity in Deerfield. He went to Fort Wayne after that. Um, Synergism. Man participates with God in his own salvation. And then uh, these crypto-Calvinists, the word crypto is being used there because they hid they hid what they were really wanting to do and what they were really teaching. And this kind of fits into the realm of this Melanchthonians. Um, Melanchthon eventually had a very strong relationship with the area known as the Palatinate, which is the center of which is Heidelberg. How many of you have ever been to Heidelberg before? Beautiful castle on a hill. You know, this, I always get mad because Mona has been to all these places, but she's never been there with us. <laughs> that is the problem. Um, Heidelberg, you know, kind of became the center of Reformed theology also in Germany. And, uh, and the, a lot of those pastors ended up going to Germany when, uh, these, when, when these German um, uh, dukes became the kings of, of England. And so there was a big Reformed influence as well that came along with them. But Needless to say, where, where are we going with all this? That portion of Germany basically had a very strong reformed background, and Melanchthon went and he was kind of their mentor, and he helped them to develop what was called the Heidelberg Catechism. How many of you have heard of the Heidelberg Catechism? Yeah, Walt doesn't count. I mean, Pastor Ullman. He's heard of everything. But the Heidelberg Catechism was the main catechism of many of the so-called Reformed groups that came to America. And you will find that there were places out in colonial America where they would have a pastor who would have a Reformed congregation in the morning and a Lutheran congregation in the afternoon. And they would teach the Heidelberg Catechism to the Reformed and they would teach Luther's Catechism to the Lutherans. this was early America where Reformed and Lutherans had kind of a strange relationship with each other, but it has always been a bit of a problem because they're kind of, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like they look alike, but they're not, this is a very different view of our faith. So anyway, let's uh, go on. Then there were the Genesio Lutherans, Genesio being true or genuine is the phrase that is used there. I don't know that that was absolute. There were also problems among them. Uh, They were led by this guy named Flacius. They were valiant champions of Lutheran theology, and some of them fell into what we call extreme positions. Um, They were better theologians by and large, um, but uh, they were not willing... Uh, they were willing not to address the problems outside their ranks, but also to address and deal with problems within their own ranks. So um, I guess what he's saying, 
what's being said here is that they, they at least were open enough to criticize themselves as well as their criticism of those who lay outside, which is usually the sign of a good theologian. A good theologian doesn't just point the finger to the bad guys out there. He also points the finger to either himself or to the bad guys in his midst. And there is a willingness to work and to find consensus. There was this group called the Center Party. And they were kind of the guys who were kind of slow to arise. Um, a guy like Chemnitz. Um, and they, in the end, were the ones who really formulated the formative concord. Um, they didn't tolerate unionism. You know, what is unionism? What is unionism? No, this is not the local 425. Um, what is unionism? Going once, going twice? Yeah, yeah, or, or any other church body where you have one group over here that believes one thing, another group over here that believes another thing, and you just ignore your differences and you come together. That's called unionism. Now, it's not, it's, today, it's, it's kind of built around the issue of close communion. Because we say, why is it that we don't enter into communion fellowship with other church bodies that teach things that are contrary to the Scriptures? Because the minute that we say we have unity at the altar, we're also saying that those differences don't matter. And this is really hard for people because they come from different churches and they say, I'm a Christian. And I think in many respects they probably are. But their church body, or perhaps even they, hold on to things that are contrary to the Word of God. And that is why it is that we try to make sure that every person who comes to the Lord's Supper is in unity with us on all these points of faith and doctrine. Now, we're, we live in an imperfect world, so don't tell me that you know somebody who's been taking the Lord's Supper here that doesn't believe the Incarnation or something like that. I mean, Hopefully, that's, there's, everybody does, but sometimes it's imperfect. So they fought against unionism, and that's what you want to mark that. Indifferentism, or compromise on doctrine. Now, indifferentism is maybe what? Have you ever heard the phrase, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And the answer is, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> Indifferentism is I don't care. Do you really care whether or not somebody believes in the power of baptism? Do you really care whether or not the presence of Christ is there in the Lord's Supper? Do you really care whether or not we worship on Sunday morning? You really care whether or not your children want to know who Christ is? You really care about whether or not the next generation is going to know the gospel? You really care whether or not people are not believing and may be lost? Do you really care? And if you say no, there's a spirit there of indifferentism. I don't think that that's something that we ever want to tolerate in ourselves, but we certainly don't want to see indifferentism even in our children. 
please, please care. Okay, and what's the other thing? And then uh, they were careful not to fall into error in the process. Okay, compromise. All right, um, why original sin? Let's have a look at our outline on that. Let's, let's take this quote from Ephesians as our launching point. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. That's number 3 because we're following up on this outline. Could you read it with me? Everybody spot it there? Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, third paragraph on that number 3 and such. Okay. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I cannot tell you how much theology is contained in that section of Ephesians. Let's break it down. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Does this suggest that a person has a natural power to accept Christ by their own faculties prior to receiving the Holy Spirit? No. Dead men tell no tells, and dead men cannot make decisions. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. We're going to talk about that. That is a part of what we call original sin. He goes on to say, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay. So, if you are dead in your transgressions and sins, whose slave are you? The world and the devil. Now, you look at that little baby. How could this child be a slave of the world and of the devil? I was taking care of my grandson this week, along with, I guess, my granddaughter too. But, you know, he just looks into your eyes and you go, aboo. And he goes, ah, like this. And you think, dead in his transgressions and sins. Yeah, there he is. But even a person can be born into slavery, can't they? 
Yeah, slaves were born in slavery all the time. He is actually, by birth, a slave to the world and a slave to the devil. This is what original sin teaches us. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. I think the Apostle Paul was including himself in this, but also in a very different way. Lived among them. He saw his own life in Judaism as also being a part of it. Paul's life in Judaism was a life of a Pharisee. What did the Pharisees believe about salvation? By their works, by their deeds, by their merits. And so therefore, when a person can be religious, zealous for the cause, living to earn their own salvation by means of the law, what are they? They are a slave to the world and a slave to Satan. That's why Jesus would say, you are of your father the devil. He's a liar from the beginning. What has he been teaching? That you're saved by your works. And then he goes on, doesn't he, to the logical step that goes beyond that. He says, like the rest, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So, who is responsible for your conversion? You? You were dead, right? He made you alive. When did he make you alive? Well, you would say baptism. Now, of course, we could say the word, right? The word, that thief on the cross, the word, we didn't see that he had a chance to be baptized, but he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. In other words, it is unbelief that condemns. But when you believe, what happened to the Philippian jailer? When he came to believe, he said, I want to be baptized along with my whole household. Oh, excuse me, you have a little boy here that's two years old. Do you accept Jesus as your Savior, little boy? No, they didn't do that. They took their whole household. They brought the servants. They brought their children. They brought their sons. They brought their daughters. And they were baptized. For the promise, Paul, Peter says, for the promise is unto you and unto your children. That in that baptism, God literally makes us alive. He brings us out of death into life, that the Holy Spirit creates a new life within us. Wow, this is, this is so wonderful. It's not us. It's Him. It's His doing. We deserve nothing but wrath. But out of His rich mercy, He made us alive. We go on. What else can you say? It is by Grace, 
you have been saved. Grace is by definition undeserved kindness or undeserved favor. Now, do, do we have any other place in our life that we could say that we've experienced grace? Your paycheck, is it by grace? By works. For the people that refuse to work, if you had a couple of employees like that, then it is by grace. <laughs> but uh, how about marriage? When your spouse falls in love with you and says yes, was it by grace? If it's the woman to the man, yes. When she says yes, it's grace. When he says, would you marry me, it's by works. <laughs> it's a little bit different there. But just kidding aside. Now, is there anything, anything in our life that's truly by grace? You get a scholarship. Zoe, did you get a scholarship yet? Okay. By grace or by works? Yeah. By, by works, but, you know, it's kind of a gracious thing maybe, but... Yeah. Um, how about, how about, um, well, what else could we say? There is no way that there is any human thing on earth that can compare to what this means. We were by nature children of wrath. Imagine somebody does some horrible thing to your children. You watch and you see some person who comes out of the darkness of night and who just violates and harms your own child. You want to kill him. And then you turn around and you instead forgive him. Really? Maybe it's getting closer to what grace looks like. We were by nature children of wrath. And out of his great mercy, undeserved kindness, out of this great mercy of his, he gave us his grace. And he says, by grace you have been saved and God raised us up. Is that in the future or is it in the past? Raised. In my language, raised is when you were baptized into Christ, you were literally brought to life, exalted, and you have been raised up. Um, this, is, um, this is hard for us to imagine that we have been actually raised up with Christ um, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, I know from our perspective, it looks like it's something yet to come. But imagine for a second that, say, for instance, that they discovered actually now through the genes, you took that genetic test and they go, oh, man, you're actually the Tsar of Russia. We hereby bestow upon you the leadership of all of Russia. And you go... I've been raised up. Right? And now let's seat you, which would mean that actually we do something to actually put you upon that throne. 
That's what it is that happened to you and me in our baptism. And it's now just a matter of us bringing that to fulfillment beyond the door of death. And he did this for a very good reason, because when we get to heaven, we're going to... I was talking to my brother-in-law about this. Um, you remember that old Jimmy Stewart movie called Shenandoah? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody here who is somewhere over 40 goes, hmm? <laughs> everybody under 40 goes, <laughs> Shenandoah? He starts off, you know, they're going to pray. You know, we did it ourselves, God. I don't know why in the world we're even thanking you for this. We were the ones that went out into the field. We plowed the field. We planted the corn. And we were the ones that harvested it. So we did it all. And then he goes through this war and he just loses everything. And the whole family comes back to a destroyed household. And he folds his hands and he prays, Lord, now all of a sudden it's all grace. Now he realizes this isn't from us. This is a gift from God. And whatever we have, a life that we have is a gift from God. That's when we get to heaven, when we enter into the fullness of that expression, we are going to say, I cannot believe that you have actually given to us this gift. And we are going to praise God from now until the end of eternity, for which there is no end, And we're going to thank him and praise him for his grace that he gave to us. The um, my wife isn't here, is she? Can I tell a story on her? Oh, oh, there she is! Oh no, I can't. I I always like it uh, now that we're kind of heading towards retirement, you know, and all of a sudden the dishes become my responsibility. I wash these dishes, wash these dishes, you know, dry them, put them away, and there are two things left. And she says, why don't you go in and watch TV? I'll take care of the rest of this. (laughs) Two things left. And I go, I don't want to share my glory with her at all. (laughs) I'm going to finish those dishes myself. Now, consider what this looks like in heaven, if it could that here you have a humanity that's fallen in sin. This dead, just dead in trespasses and sin, cannot save themselves, angry with God, enemies of God. God sends his son into the world. His son takes upon himself our human flesh, enables himself to be able to do war with the devil, goes to the cross, dies for the sins of the whole world, crushes the doors of death. And then that message comes to us, and we say, thank you, Jesus. Now, Uh, Here are two things that I did for you, God. I accepted you as my Savior. And, uh, you know, know, when we're in heaven, we can say, Jesus, I appreciate all that you did, but I accepted you. No. When we get to heaven, we're going to say, you made me, you created me, you knew me before I existed, you washed me, you took me from death, and you brought me into life. You converted me. You destroyed death in me. You gave me an everlasting life that has no end. And I am going to spend all eternity in the presence of the Almighty God experiencing the fullness of joy as God has intended and created. And when we are in heaven, it's all going to be a praise of grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It was given to us as grace. And now you begin to understand why it is that the doctrine of original sin is so important 
because it destroys everything in us that would claim we had any part in this at all. Now you think about this too. I, had, I grew up with a, a girl. Her dad and my dad were best friends. They went hunting out in Montana together and the whole bit. Just Her dad was the greatest guy. Good, solid Lutheran. Her mother had gotten into kind of the Pentecostal stuff. And she was even my Sunday school teacher for a while. I can remember that. And um, her whole life was kind of devoted to kind of, I guess you might call the perfection of everybody who was around her. Well, she greatly influenced her daughter, and her daughter came to the conclusion that she had accepted that Lutheran stuff wasn't good enough. That baptism wasn't good enough. What Christ did for her wasn't good enough. That she actually had to accept Christ or it wasn't valid. Well, this, this girl accepted Christ and then many, many, many years later when I was doing a vicarage down in uh, Galveston, Texas, there she was. She was down there in Galveston and we met and we were talking. She was in my confirmation class. And she believed that she maybe was no longer a Christian because when she thought that she accepted Christ as her Savior, she was now questioning whether or not that was something induced in her or whether or not she was sincere. You know, you think about that. If anything depends on me, if it's an emotional experience, if it's a so-called decision, are there times later on where that could be questioned and brought, well, how about if you mess up in your life? How about if you were a person who accepted Christ and Christ was going to come into your life? What would happen if all of a sudden you became like the prodigal son and kind of just slipped away and went into the world? Could you ever come back? And if it depended upon you, did that son, when he came back, you know, here he is walking in his rags, he gets to his father's house, did he say, I'm here to claim what used to belong to me? He said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant in your household. Uh, she ended up, because the whole dang thing relied upon her decision, it now was something that she doubted because that decision is something that fades. That decision can be questioned. That decision may not have been sincere enough and it didn't have the power to be able to help her get through her problems in life. And you wonder why it is that we stand here and say, no, this doctrine of original sin is a vital thing in our faith. Now, I'm going to just do one more thing here. And I want to point this out. I had it here. There it is. Okay. There we go. Here's the wagon wheel. Here's the hub. Here are the spokes. Now, 
in order to be able to, in our faith, in order to be able to have a wagon wheel, I guess you might say that in our relationship with God, there has to be an authority, right? If you don't have an authority, you can't believe anything. I mean, you know, if somebody says to you that you've just won the lottery, that better be a person of authority, otherwise you just doubt it. There has to be a center, and this is the focus or the whatever it is that we as Christians have got to believe, and this has got to be the gospel. And that gospel, which translates into what? Not just kind of good news. I, it, uh, that always falls short. But the Oyan Gelon, this, this message kind of like that Philippe days when he comes running in the plains of Marathon and he runs into the city of Athens and he says, Ninikon, we have conquered! And he falls down and dies and everybody realizes that 200,000 Norwegians, I mean Greeks, <laughs> took, took on those uh, invading Persians, a million of them, and they won. And you go, oh, we're not going to be in slavery. Oh, we've got our lives back. Oh, we've got our husbands back. We're not going to be sold out in the far remotes of the, of the empire of Persia. The gospel, Christ has won. He has conquered. Death has been overcome. All things have been paid for. That's the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. That's the center. Now, how can you have a gospel if you don't have a Bible that is the Word of God? Right? Battle for the Bible. Is the Bible the inspired, inerrant Word of God? And if it's not, you think we could believe this? Well, maybe pie in the sky believe it, but only because it's kind of like a fairy tale. They fought for, this was all really almost assumed, but this is also what it is that Luther went to, didn't he? He went back to the Word of God. All right, now you have the gospel, which is at the center of that. But the spokes are these doctrines and teachings like original sin. Because if you don't have original sin, if you don't understand original sin, how can you understand the gospel? And so we have original sin. We have sacraments of baptism. And the Lord's Supper. And if you want to get really complex, predestination. And these teachings serve as the spokes in the wheel. Now people will say to us, they'll say, well, I've got, I've got a friend. And this friend believes this. But my friend doesn't believe this. How does that work? Well, you tell me. How many of you have had bicycles? I just like to see everybody can vote for that. Bicycles? Everybody have bicycles? What happens if you take out one spoke? Well, you keep going, but you don't want to hit a bump, right? Maybe two spokes. And maybe if you take out enough spokes, your whole wheel collapses. But I want to say, 
because we are advocates of what you might call true doctrine or doctrine that's, that's faithful to the gospel, it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody out there who doesn't share our confession is not a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is this combined with this. But let us also be mindful that when we take, start taking out the spokes and we make it a matter of indifference, we jeopardize and put a person's faith possibly in danger. So we shouldn't be indifferent. Let's not be arrogant. Let's not say only Missouri Synod Lutherans are going to heaven because I know a lot of them that aren't. <laughs> okay. Um, we can't say that. But what we have to say is these are all these magnificent, beautiful doctrines and teachings that have been laid out in our confessions. They had to fight for these things. And the formula of Concord is one of them. And the doctrine of original sin became challenged on all different fronts. And these guys, they were tough. Yeah, Magdeburg was the holdout and Maurice came and brought his army and surrounded Magdeburg and burned the entire city to the ground. This is uh, what happened. And I've always wondered about that statement of Jesus. Um, when he talks about um, the end times, and he says, they say, where is this going to be? And he says, where the body is, that's where the vultures or the eagles will gather you can almost always tell where the church is to be found because the vultures are up there above looking for the body. We are a church, and I said in my sermon, at war. Because the world wants to destroy this, they want to destroy this, they want to destroy that. But you have to remember, the one who fights for us, he's the one that does it, not us. We don't overcome the world. He overcame the world. Any comments, questions, thoughts? Okay. Who all here is planning on going on our trip to Germany this year? You want to raise your hands? Here we go. Stand up so everybody can see you. It's all right. You can stand. Okay, okay. everybody stand, then some of you just sit down. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, we, we are going to... Um, now, next Sunday, we've got our Easter breakfast. And after that, we're going to try to be able to maybe take up a couple of more things that were discussed uh, with uh, this doctrine of originals, not just original sin, but the other controversies settled by the formula of Concord. Our group is actually going to go to the castle. We're going to stop there. I don't know whether or not we're going to get in. But we're actually going to go to the castle where it is that the writers of the formula of Concord were sequestered when they wrote it. And this was a big deal in Lutheranism because they could not find unity. And when these guys got together, they were the best theologians in all of Germany. And so it's going to be kind of a, a great thing. So, all right, should we close with a prayer?
I'm going to pray and then we're going to close with the Lord's Prayer. Everybody together, okay? O Lord and Savior, we pray that we as your church may always remain faithful to all that is taught to us in the Scriptures. Help us to accept and to believe what our minds and what reason cannot accept, what you know about us, that we, by nature, are blind, dead, and enemies of God and would be lost forever unless delivered by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For his wondrous gift of grace, given to us in word and in sacrament, we give you thanks and we pray for your whole church that your church may be united in these doctrines and teachings, that we might not be divided, that human pride may not enter in that would separate us, and that the world and the devil with all their might and power may not be able to overcome us. For you are the one who fights for us. Fight for us, O Lord. Defend us by thy word and grant unto us the peace that passes all human understanding. This we pray as we now pray the prayer that you have taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all very much.